Uh, well, um, ladies and gentlemen, a disturbing number of Australians pray, and you may have heard the last couple of years, a disturbing number of atheists pray, and I thought I might just open in prayer um, just to ask God that if he's there, if you're not sure, that he would help us to think honestly and to listen with courage to this story by Jesus that as you've uh, heard, as we've entitled it, perhaps Jesus' most shocking story. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we have. We thank you for the brains that you've given us and uh, the capacity to think and to analyse and to um, ponder big questions as well as small questions. Uh, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be men and women who think with honesty and with courage. We pray that you would speak to us, you'd help us to hear you and to respond with honesty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, this, um, this story by Jesus, which is printed for you in the left-hand side of the outline there, I want to suggest to you is an R-rated story, so I hope you're all 18 plus for those who uh, zoomed through high school. Don't tell your parents. This is an adult-only passage. It's uh, got some stimulating stuff in it. It's got some very controversial, in fact, some of Jesus' most controversial ideas are in it. And yet, I can guarantee you without a shadow of a doubt, this story is relevant to you. You will see yourself in this story. And you'll be addressed by Jesus as we look at it. One of the things that you hope people do when they come to uni is they take time to face some of the, the hard facts of life in our universe. At some stage or other, we've got to stop playing around in the nursery and look at the big questions and sometimes the ugly questions of life. So I've tried to work out a light-hearted way to introduce this story from Jesus to you, it being lunchtime and you've probably had thrilling and exciting and mind-stretching lectures all morning and you go to thrilling and stretching uh, lectures or tutorials in the afternoon. But I couldn't work out a way to be light and bright and breezy and lunchtimey. I felt a bit like this character called Fred in the famous story about Fred and Charlie who were neighbours and Charlie had this massive collection of animals kind of in, in place of his family and Fred was on his case for ages to go away and have a holiday, get away from this tiny little house and this tiny little suburb and all your animals but um, Charlie felt he could never go because he loved his animals and he had to care for them. Well, Fred, in the end, gave him an ironclad guarantee he would care for the animals. And Charlie said, listen, what I need to know so I can enjoy my week away down the far, far south coast is that if anything goes wrong, you'll let me know, that you'll keep me honestly informed. And Fred said, I promise. So Charlie heads off. Three days later, he's wandering up to get his milk and his paper and his bread from the only point of contact with the outside world, a little all-purpose store, and there's not only to get the bread and the milk, but there's a telegram for him. And he opens it with trembling hands and it says, Cat dead, love Fred. Charlie's both upset, tearfully, and upset angrily. And he asks the owner of the shop, can I borrow your phone? And the bloke says, yep. So he rings up and he said, listen, Charlie, uh, that was just the most disgraceful way to tell someone such bad news. And, and Fred said, listen, I don't, I don't know how else to break it to you. I mean, the cat was dead. <laughs> you know, the telegrams are expensive. So... Um, he said, what, what, are you, what are you saying I should do? He said, well, you should have sent me a telegram on the first day saying, the cat is on the roof and I can't get it down. Love, Fred. 
Second day, Cat sustained serious injuries in falling from the roof, but is hanging on. Love, Fred. Last day, the cat has passed on. Uh, love, Fred. Fred said, okay, mate, sounds like a waste of time money, but if that'll help, I'll do it. Well, three days later, Charlie goes back up to the shop to get the basic essentials, and there's another telegram for him. And he opens it up, and it says, your mother is on the roof, and I can't get her down. <laughs> now, I'd like to say it's a true story. Um, see, no matter, how you, no matter how you deal with some things, you just have to confront them. And there are some things that are just not giggles and that are worth knowing and important. And if you can embrace them and swallow them, can actually enhance things. But they're actually tough. This is such a story. And I've divided into um, two and a half beggars and five brothers. These are the, the features in this story. People are interesting. Two and a half beggars and five brothers. <clears throat> well, first of the two beggars. We meet the first beggar at the beginning of the story by being introduced to his neighbour. Verse 19. That's what the little numbers are if you're not sure what they are. We've divided the Bible into chapters and verses to make it easier to find. The little numbers are the verses in chapter 16 of Luke's Gospel. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, and moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So we meet the neighbour by being introduced to his neighbourhood, and he lives next to a the he lives next to a very rich man, a mega rich man, a very lucky man who's clothed in purple, which is the most beautiful and the most expensive dye in those days. He's in the finest linen, no doubt Egyptian linen which was the most comfortable clothing of the day. So he had the best looking and the most comfortable clothing. And every day was Christmas. Or if you're American, every day was Thanksgiving Day. Every day was just feasting sumptuously. This man not only had money, but he knew how to enjoy it. And he did. The only downside was that outside his gate, and you only had a gate in Jesus' day if you were very rich, outside his gate was this poxy beggar covered in sores coveting the food that fell off his table. That was a real downer. It really brings down the neighbourhood. And here is this poor beggar, longing unsuccessfully to eat what fell off the rich man's table, the crumbs that the dogs would have got. And the dogs would come and lick his sores. So weak was he apparently that he couldn't even shoo these horrible little feral dogs away. And they're just coming and licking his pussy, salty, bloody sores. So there's the first beggar who gets ignored. And then in verse 22, everything is radically reversed. There's a myth, it's a helpful myth, but there's a myth that says that death is the great leveller, which is often true. Um, but actually death in Jesus' hands is more often the great reverser. Verse 22, the poor man, our first beggar, died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, Abraham's bosom is a standard... Uh, Hebrew Jewish way to speak about heaven there's actually a beach down near Jarvis Bay called Abram's Bosom and it's, uh, it's a beautiful beach and the idea, it's a picture of heaven it's a standard Jewish way of speaking about heaven you know if we tell a joke Peter was outside the pearly gates you all, you know, it's sort of code for a joke about heaven well it's like that for Jesus and his day so this poor guy dies and he goes to heaven he's carried by the angels to heaven to Abram's bosom the rich man dies and is buried Presumably, unlike the poor man who wouldn't have been buried, his body would have just been thrown in the local rubbish tip. That's what happened to the poor in those days. And then I want to introduce you to the second beggar. Verse 23. In Hades, 
which is just the word for the place that dead people go. It's a neutral word, but it's divided into different areas according to Jesus. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. And now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us. Well, Lazarus, the ex-poor man, is now in heaven, and verses 23 and 24, I think, are amongst the most chilling and unnerving of uh, the Bible. They speak about what happens to some people after death. He's in Hades. He is described as being in torment, in verse 24, he is described as being in anguish and he's described as being in this flame. So he's in a fire. I want to stress at this point before you tune this out, humans have a remarkable capacity just to, when we hear something that's unpleasant and uncomfortable, just to put up all sorts of silly defences to go into denial and pretend it isn't true. These, this is not Ian Powell's opinion. This is not the opinion of the EU or anyone as insignificant as that. This is the word of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, if you know more about life after death, you may well stick with your opinion. If you are the Son of God and you are the judge of the living and the dead as Jesus is, you may well prefer your opinion to his because we're such experts, aren't we, on these things. This is the opinion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's quite clear at every level and in every of, Je every of the Gospels that Jesus believes that after death, a certain number of real live human beings go from death to judgment, to hell. Real people, like you. There will be people in this room, according to the teaching of Jesus, who will go to hell. And we need to have the courage to think about this. I know it's unpleasant. The easiest thing is to laugh about it and pretend it isn't true. But if Jesus' word is to be taken seriously, people just like you and me finish up in hell. And people just like you and me can finish up in Abram's bosom. He tells this story about this man, this ex-rich man, this ex-enviable man, this one who seemed to have it all, and he is begging. Listen, in verse 24, this is what he begs for. Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this fire. See, he would have been used to snapping his fingers and calling the servants to give him another goblet of Chardonnay uh, or... Uh, schooner of VB or a Vegemite glass of water or something like that. But here he just wants Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, just a drip or two onto the end of his tongue because he is in desperate, desperate thirst. And if you've ever been desperately thirsty, it is the, it is the most powerful drive humans have, much more powerful than sex, the desire for water when you are thirsty. And this guy is desperate just for a, a momentary relief in this picture. And he is told by Abram, who speaks in this parable clearly for God, he's told that there is no relief. It's impossible, verse 26, even if Lazarus wanted to get to you, he can't, and you certainly can't get from where you are to where we are. 
So in the simplest possible form, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about what we would call hell. There's a very sad thing, I think, in our culture, and sometimes even Christians do this. We use hell in a cheap way. We say, I've had a hell of a week. I would suggest if we take Jesus here, you'd never speak like that. It's like using Auschwitz lightly. You know, you just, once you understand what happened in Auschwitz, you would never use Auschwitz lightly. I've had an Auschwitz of a week. But knowing a little bit about Auschwitz and having had friends who were there, older friends, obviously, Auschwitz is a picnic compared to hell. Uh, if you find that insulting, that simply means you don't understand what Jesus says about hell. Uh, hell is a real place. The thing I hated most about Christianity, the two things I hated about Christianity before I bothered to look at it, one was this teaching about hell. I was convinced it was the Apostle Paul who made it up. I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and we all knew that Paul was the arch perverter of Christianity. Um, he was the guy who made up all this dogma about God. Jesus taught a lovely thing about love your neighbour and be nice to each other. And then Paul came along and ruined it. You may not have picked up that nonsense, but I, we, that's what we believe. What disturbs you when you begin to read the Gospels and a terrible lot of people who are otherwise well-educated have never read a Gospel since they've been adults. But when you actually pick it up, you discover, as I did, that the great hellfire preacher in the whole of the Bible is Jesus Christ. And many of you are aware of this. The word for hell is Gehenna. Uh, that's the word that specifically you know, is translated as hell. And it comes, as many of you will know, from the rubbish tip that burned night and day outside Jerusalem. And it was where the bodies of criminals were thrown. It's where Jesus' body would have been thrown if he hadn't been taken off into that tomb by Joseph Arimathea. It was where rubbish, sewerage, anything was thrown. It just burnt all the time. It stank. In various parts around the edges, you could see great masses of worms feeding their way through various parts. It was really disgusting. And that's the picture Jesus has of hell. And the, the, the picture of the, the word hell is used 12 times in the Bible, only 12 times, and 11 of the 12 times it's out of the mouth of Jesus, who is, without a doubt, the most loving human being who ever lived, without a doubt. And he speaks about hell because he loves you. It's the only reason. He warns you about hell because it's real. And if you listen to what Jesus says about hell, you discover a number of things. You discover that it's a fact. You can crap on all you like about it not being true. You can waffle on about being scare tactics made up by the medieval church to keep peasants killing out their money to keep the system going. That's all rubbish. It was made up by Jesus. The church may or may not have misused it. I'm sure they have. We managed. Humans can misuse anything. But Jesus says it's a fact. He says it is fearful. If you understand what it is like, it is a thing worth being feared. In a very small sense, if you understand what the you know, HIV AIDS is about, you will be frightened of it. It's a scary thing. It's a terrible thing. It doesn't go away because we don't like it. And hell is final and hell is fair. No one in hell will complain that they didn't get a go. There will be an acknowledgement that this is exactly where they belong. This man does not complain that he's there. There's no shaking the fist at God. He understands in some measure that he deserves to be there. Jesus uses just so many pictures to describe it. He pictures it like a place of fire, like this one. Not all that often, actually. More often, I think, he pictures it as a place of darkness. Pitch black darkness. In fact, when some of the early Christians began to share the gospel of Jesus with the Eskimos, Inuit people, I think I'm supposed to call them. Inuit people, is that right? Thank you. Um, 
They had troubles because when they described hell as a place of fire, you see, they spend their whole life struggling against the cold. So the idea of a place where there were fires going, so that you can just as easily, maybe if Jesus had come to the Inuit people, that's where he'd been born, born in an Eskimo instead of in a stable, born in an Eskimo, in a igloo. <laughs> Gestated in an Eskimo. Um, he may well have used the picture of cold which is just as terrifying in many ways, to be frozen eternally. And the most common picture, that one of the most common things that Jesus says a number of times in his teaching is, better to tear your hand off than go to hell. Better to rip your eyeball out than go to hell. It's a, it's a picture of fierce, fierce reality. Frankly, as I read the Bible, I'm not at all convinced there'll be fire in hell. It's a picture. Jesus seems to gather every terrifying image to describe, this, to describe this eternal, spiritual, real fact that real-life humans go to in the end after death. I'm not sure if there'll be fire. My understanding is it will be worse than that. But if you know what it's like to be burnt, and if you know the natural human desire to avoid being burnt, that's what Jesus is talking about. Uh, that this man has stumbled in it and he is begging. So there are two beggars. One's a short-term beggar. Uh, the other is a long-term beggar. One is a short-term tragedy that turns into a comedy. The other is a momentary uh, enjoying things sumptuously and a shatteringly long-term tragedy, according to Jesus. According to Jesus. Well, let's move on to the five brothers. Now, friends, this is where you and I start. This is where we get our, our um, bit in the play. Because he goes on, he realises he can't escape hell and it's kind of like I imagine him slumping back into despair and depression and then he remembers. Verse 27. Then he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. This is Lazarus, who's also dead. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, the man said. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And here's really the punch. Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Isn't that full of irony in one of Jesus' stories? Neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. So he remembers his brothers. This guy's not a nasty guy. This guy loves his brothers. He cares about his brothers. He's finished up in a terrible place and he remembers that my brothers are very similar to me. They're alive. They're heading to death as we all are, sooner or later. So because he loves them, he wants to give them a gift. He wants to send them a ghost. He wants someone to go from the other side with a message. And not the nonsense that goes on on TV shows and the you know, the Daily Telegraph things about life after death, where all the people on the other side, you know the pictures we always have, they're all having a nice time and they want to say to you, hey, I'm having a good time. I'm looking forward to you coming and joining me too. Don't worry. Many of you will know that after the First World War, this sort of business of spiritism and speaking to dead really went through the roof in England. Not quite so much in Australia because people were so interested in making contact with their lost sons and brothers. And it was always the same. I'm okay. Very comforting. Very nice. That's not at all what Jesus says. This guy who's dead and loves his brothers who are still alive, he wants to get a message about the truth. He wants someone to come and to warn them. 
He wants to send them, get onto this. He wants to give them as a Christmas present a preacher of the worst possible kind, a Bible bashing preacher, a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Because he knows in the end that's what his brothers need to hear. Now, even most Christians wouldn't wish that on their enemies. We're nervy. We don't like it because if you talk about hell, you always get mocked. The thing Australians most need to hear about, we give people the hardest time if we talk about But this guy wants someone to go and warn his brothers. And let me say this to you very carefully because, I mean, I'm older, so this is certainly true of me, but I imagine most of us have got people who love us or people who we've loved, certainly people who've loved us like grandparents, something like that, who are dead. And if they could get a message to you today, if they could get a message to you today, it would be this message Jesus talks about. It wouldn't be some nonsense about, it's all okay over here, Um, looking forward to you joining us, have a good life. Unless Jesus Christ is a deliberate liar, your dead loved ones would want to tell you about heaven and hell. If they're in heaven, they want to urge you to make sure you got there too. If they are in hell, they would want to plead with you not to repeat their stupid mistake. I had discussions with my grandmother after I became a Christian, about becoming Christian. She said, I'm not going to become a Christian. I said, why not? She said, if I become a Christian, I'm saying that Pop, her husband, is in hell. Now, I think she's probably mistaken about her husband. They lived in a generation where they didn't talk about God. But judging by the look of his Bible, uh, which was just almost worn out around John's Gospel, I'm not convinced that he was necessarily a non-believer. But I didn't know what to say to her, so I talked to an old wise Christian friend who's given me a lift on his motorbike one time. And he said, uh, I said, what do you say to that? And he went back to this story. He said, tell your grandmother that if your grandfather get a message back to him, to her, he would be saying, don't make that mistake. If you have loved ones who are dead, this is what they'd want to say. Because there is no hope of change for the dead, according to Jesus. Reincarnation is so nice, particularly in the silly westernised form. Uh, not in, in its real life form, in its eastern form, it's a fairly scary business. You go through thousands and thousands and thousands of times dealing with your karma. But according to Jesus, when you die, it is appointed unto man once to die, the Bible says, and then follows the judgment. There is no hope of change for the ex-rich man, but there is for us. Friends, we, we are like the five brothers. We are the ones who are still alive. We are the ones who can still hear the message about what's true. We, you are the sort of people who have the opportunity to listen to God and to repent because that's what he wants in the end. Verse 30. The ex-rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They need to hear the truth so they can repent. And on the outline, which is slightly confused in some ways, there's the English sort of transliteration of the Greek word for repent, metanoia. It comes from two words, the last one, the noia part, meaning mind or thinking, and the meta meaning to change. Repentance has almost nothing to do with being sad and saying sorry. That's entirely secondary. It's got everything to do with changing the way you think. That is what God wants. He wants to talk with you about reality so that we'll change the way we think. And if you change the way you think, you will change the way you live. 
And this guy knows that they don't need you know, theological discussion or interesting philosophical thoughts. They need to hear the truth about God and change the way they're living, change the way they're thinking. It is to do a great U-turn. Now, I've, I've done some U-turns in my day. Most of you here can drive. You don't normally do U-turns by accident. Have you ever noticed that? If you do a U-turn by an accident, pull over before you kill someone or get breathalyzed. <laughs> I did a U-turn once. In the, I wasn't driving. I was in the, the, my... Driving across the Harbour Bridge, this lovely mad lady who was the mother of the girl I was going out with at the time, she was going to drive us across the bridge. We're going to go and hear some jazz in the city. And she was just decided, I don't want to go into the city. I'm going to do a U-turn. I laughed. I thought she was kidding. She slowed down. It was Saturday night. There wasn't all that much traffic on, and she did a U-turn. A very memorable event. <laughs> um, so, we see, we were heading that way. She makes a decision, I do not want to go all the way into the city. So she does a U-turn. She changes her mind about where she wants to go. She changes her direction and we go back the other way. She drops us at Milson's Point Station or something like that. Now what Jesus is talking about is repent. That is, change, face up to the facts about what is real about your life and therefore what is important about life and therefore how to live. Begin to listen so it's worthwhile thinking, why does this man finish up in hell? If you don't read the story carefully, you can think that Jesus is saying, rich people go to hell, which means we're all in trouble because we're all rich. Anyone who's at university is rich, rich, rich. We're in the top 3 or 4%. Most of us would be in the top 2%. We're filthy rich. You don't feel rich, but you are. We can talk about that later, just statistically. All right, we're all in trouble if that's the case. And then poor people, they all go to heaven. Well, here's the problem with that story. We know from this story alone two people who are in heaven, Abraham and Lazarus. And Abraham was filthy rich. Abraham was very, very rich. God had blessed him, the Bible says, and God had made him very, very rich. He had his own standing army. Very few of you have your own standing. You may, asp you may aspire to that. Right? <laughs> But he had vast amounts of herds and vast quantities of wealth and huge numbers of servants who he turned into armies at various times to rescue people. So it can't be that you're rich because Abraham's filthy rich and Lazarus was filthy poor. The issue you can see very clearly is, is, in, is in Abraham's words. Verse 29, he wants, he wants some spectacular miracle thinking that will change them, which it doesn't. Just read the Gospels where people kept seeing miracle after miracle and then would go to Jesus and say, give us a miracle to prove you're the Son of God, geniuses. <laughs> Verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let me explain to you. The problem with this guy is obvious. He doesn't listen to God. God has given his word through his prophets, through Moses. He speaks to people through it. This guy doesn't want to listen. He refuses to listen. And that's why he can ignore the poor. See, it's not that he goes to hell because he ignores the poor man of this gate, but that's the evidence, isn't it? You can't have the Bible in this hand and the poor man at that hand. If you're listening to the Bible, you have to reach out your hand. The evidence that you've heard God will be seen in the fact that you begin to love the needy. The refusal to care for the needy, the refusal to act in certain ways towards your fellow human beings is proof of the fact 
you are not listening to God. But the essential thing is how you treat God. If you couldn't be bothered to listen to God about what he thinks about what happens after death or how his creatures should live on his earth, of course you shouldn't go to heaven. What an absurdity that would be. You spend your whole life ignoring God, pretending that he hasn't spoken, and then you expect God to say, oh, come on in, friend. My best friends always ignore me for the whole of their lives and curse me when things go wrong. That's how friends always treat people. The guy goes to hell because in the end that's what he wants. He doesn't actually want God. He doesn't want pain or suffering. He wants the gifts of God, but he doesn't want God. You show your love of someone by listening to them. You show your contempt for someone by not listening. This man, rich, so successful, treated God with contempt. He couldn't be bothered. And to repent means to change that. It means to stop treating God with contempt. To stop treating all sorts of other little human beings with enormous respect and listening to what they have to say about God and what they have to say about life after death. It just happens to be much more convenient, much less disruptive. But actually listen to what God has to say about God. What the Son of God has to say about life and death and what's true. To actually open our eyes and look at the light of the world, which is Jesus. So he won't repent. Well, he wants his brothers to repent, though, to turn. To go from being an ignorist to a listener. I want to just get you to reflect for a second. When did you start listening to God? When was it that you said, I'm going to start treating God properly? I'm going to read his mail that he sends me. Open the book. Not just out of a theoretical look, well, that's a good place to start. But when did you start to actually listen to God? That if God says this and you believe that, to realise that is nonsense. If God says, care for the poor, and you say, no, I'm keeping all the money so I can save up for some luxury, you realise, no, no, I've got to do something about caring for the poor. Instead of lying to your neighbour, speak the truth in love to your neighbour. Instead of using people, care for them and serve them. When did you start listening to God? taking his word seriously. If you haven't done that, you haven't repented. And according to Jesus, you are like the five brothers, according to him, and heading to where this ex-rich man is. And he won't get his fancy little miracle. It's funny how we demand that God should do what we think. This guy's in hell and he still thinks he can tell God and God's servants what to do. If you'll give them a miracle, raise someone from the dead, then they'll repent. And of course they don't. And of course the irony here is that's exactly what Jesus said he was about to do, die and come back from the dead and leave such clear evidence that if you look at it, you'll find it very persuasive. Still people can find excuses for ignoring God. So there are the five brothers. It's us. It's the living. who still have the choice to listen and repent. Well, thirdly, the half-beggar. We've seen the two beggars, the five brothers. Here's the half beggar. Now, I didn't know, you may have a, you can help me afterwards. I didn't know what to call this guy. What do you call someone who needs nothing, has everything, and yet begs? If you're a right wing fascist, you might say a unionist. <laughs> but of course, that's because you're a right wing fascist. <laughs> but, right, what do you call someone who has everything, needs nothing really, but is on their knees begging? 
I'm calling him a half beggar. And see, when you look into the story, two beggars. When you look into the story, five brothers. When you stand back from the story, you can see that there's someone else begging. There's someone else pleading. This story actually is Jesus Christ begging you, begging the people of his time, pleading with you to wake up while you still can. This, this is Jesus, the strong son of God, who seems to be able to do anything, control the winds and the waves, in the end tear apart this body, he says, and in three days' time I'll rebuild it. And yet here he is begging, pleading, urging you through this story to do the U-turn while you still can. I take it the part of the hell of hell is that you face up to the truth realising it is now too late. It is that sense of, I knew this was true and I messed about with it. And there is no chance to repent then. And Jesus is begging people, please repent. Please listen. Please don't live like this stupid rich person who looked so successful but at every real level was a dismal failure of a human in the way that he treated people, especially how he treated God and therefore where he finished up. You may well complain, listen, Ian, you're far too calm about this. If you really believe, even though this is this august place of education and learning, there are some truths, some facts about reality that just once you take in the nature of them, it is overwhelmingly emotional. It is how we can be so calm about this when God himself is begging and pleading us. The Bible talks about God beseeching people to be reconciled to him weird. It should be us begging God to have mercy on us, us begging God to speak to us, begging God to forgive us. But no, no, it's God comes to us in our insanity and says, please come back to me. Not because he needs you, he's not lonely, but because he knows that you need him in eternity and to have a life that's worth living. And he comes in this story and he is urging you to wake up, to start listening, to do the U-turn. And then you can see him on the cross where he dies for you, saying, I love you. I will do anything to make it possible for you to be forgiven. And he urges us to turn back. If a person, any person in this room, finishes up like this silly, silly little ex-rich man, you will have gone to hell literally over Jesus' dead body. Leaving your will and your integrity as a free person intact, he comes to you and urges you and begs you and confronts you and says, repent, turn back, seek forgiveness while you still can. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. In Luke 13, unless you repent. So if you won't repent, if you have not turned and gone from ignoring God politely to listening to him intently and seeking from him the word of life, you're heading in exactly the same direction as this foolish little rich man. Well, let me, before I offer you the prayer that you can see at the bottom of the sheet, then let me tell you a, a story, a true story, this one, perhaps unlike Charlie and Fred. Um, in the period when President Andrew Jackson was the President of the United States of America, a man called George L. Wilson committed a number of serious crimes 
and was found clearly guilty and was condemned to be put to death. A number of people urged President Jackson to give him a pardon. And I have never been able to work out exactly why this part of the the story I haven't been able to nail down. But President Andrew Jackson decided to write for George L. Wilson a what's called a presidential plenary pardon. That is a total pardon. Not just he wouldn't die, but he would be released. So he's on death row with a date set for him to be hung. And the president sits down and writes this pardon. It gets delivered by the presidential courier to the prison. The courier goes down with with the chief warden down to this man's cell. He's lying on his bed. He sits up. They hand him the pardon. Wilson reads it, looks at it for a moment, and then to everyone's amazement grabs it and rips it in half, puts the pieces together and rips it in quarters and drops it on the floor and lies back on his bed. Well, the warden picked up the bits of paper, it being from the president, and they take it back. And there were a number of hearings and court cases about what should happen to George Wilson. Was he pardoned? Should he be released? He treats the pardon with complete contempt, doesn't seem to want it. In the end, it finished up at the US Supreme Court, which determined that the value of the pardon uh, was contingent upon it being received by the person for whom it was intended. And George Wilson was hung until dead. Now, I tell you that story, you can see the connection, can't you? Why does George Wilson die? It's foolish for him to say, oh, you dirty mongrel, you president, how can you call yourself a decent man when people are being hung? He died not because a pardon was not available, not because people didn't want him to be pardoned, but he died because he rejected the pardon. Now, friends, in the end, all this nonsense, people can help and God send people to hell, people choose to go to hell. People hear of Jesus or they don't even bother to tune in for a second. He is begging, he is dying, he is saying, wake up while you can. And they walk away from it. Now, if any of you have heard the voice of Jesus through this story and God's Holy Spirit has shown you this is not just an interesting lunchtime activity, an interesting thing to chat about over coffee later on, although it is that, but this is actually reality according to the Son of God, the way that it really is. It might be appropriate for you to pray this prayer that's typed out. It's typed out in the bottom so you can see it clearly. There's nothing magic about You don't deal with God in terms of magic and formulas. It's a relationship thing, but you express the relationship, I take it, of wanting to repent by prayer. So there's a prayer you might like to have a look at it and see if it's an appropriate prayer for you today. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to come to our planet to show us what is real and important. I admit that I've been ignoring you and not taking your words seriously. I've been self-centred, but today I am returning to you. Please forgive me for the way I've mistreated you and my fellow humans. Please forgive all my sin. Please give me the strength to begin a new life with you as my master and my teacher. Thank you so much for hearing me. Amen. Now, for some of you, this prayer is not appropriate because you prayed a prayer like this a week ago or six months ago. Uh, for some of you, you might say, you might be able to honestly as it will, look God in the face and say, no, I don't really know enough, but I'm going to check it out. But some of you might know that you really have never dealt with this issue honestly as an adult, as a thoughtful, intelligent, reasonable, rational human being. This prayer might be just right for you. So what I'm going to suggest is that, and this is, you don't have to do this, I'm going to just we close our eyes. The reason why we do that is just it, it uh, helps lessen distractions, but you don't need to do that. 
So I'm going to suggest you do. And I'm going to read this prayer phrase by phrase and give you a chance to echo it to God. He is here. Like it or not, he's here. And he would love to hear from you. And if this prayer is appropriate, you might like to pray it uh, in the pauses I leave. So let's pray. If you don't want to pray, you can just give your eyes a rest and have a sleep. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to come to our planet. to show us what is real and important. I admit that I have been ignoring you and I've not been taking your word seriously. I have been self-centred. But today I am returning to you Please forgive me for the way that I have mistreated you and mistreated my fellow human beings. Please forgive all my sin. Please give me the strength to begin a new life with you as my master and as my teacher. Thank you so much for hearing me. Amen. Uh, friends, just in conclusion, uh, if um, you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I can guarantee you that God has heard you and you are forgiven. The guarantee is not based on how you may feel. That proves almost nothing except how you feel. The guarantee is based on the fact that Jesus has said, if you ask... God hears. And if you've asked to do that U-turn and to have God's forgiveness, you are forgiven, you've begun a new life, and I guarantee you're going to need to get some help. Now, one of the, the way that the EU has worked out to get help, and I would suggest you might like to follow this, is I'm going to grab these cards that should have been inside and a pen or a pencil or a crayon or whatever you bring with you to uni. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. It's a free country, you don't have to. Just in case the person next to you would like to ask for help, I'm going to ask that we all write something on this card, even, you know, something rude. <laughs> but if you've prayed that prayer to become a Christian, you are going to need to get help, and the EU is a good group of people to get help from. Or perhaps you're saying, I didn't pray that prayer, but I would like to pursue this honestly and seriously and check it out. So if you could just jot down your name... If you decided to become a Christian today, tick that prayer, tick that box. It may be that you can't say that with all integrity. It would have been inappropriate for you to pray the prayer. But it may be worth checking this Jesus thing out for yourself now that you're an adult. Don't live on second-hand opinions. I want to find out more about Christianity. Tick. And then when you leave, just fold this up and there will be people at the door. Just drop it in. If you've just written another comment on how you found the day... Advice on speakers, like never get Ian Power back again. <laughs> Phil and others would like to know that. So do drop that in too. Feel free to be as rude as you like. And if, you've, you, know, if you did pray that prayer, welcome to a new life and uh, do get some help. I found the first few months of being a Christian, which happened when I was 19, the hardest months of my life, because I didn't get the help that I should have got. So do get some help. Thank you very much.